this portfolio sizes were completely disproportionate to my earnings. This, the size was too big, in mm -hmm. essence. I never had position of this size before, and it was completely disproportionate to everything else that was going on in my life. And that's what was making me so sick about it. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, Louis Vincent Gav. Louis, are you ready to join the mission? I'll try my best. <laughs> Something tells me you're going to do a good job with that. Let me introduce you to the audience. Louis Vincent Gav is the CEO of GavCal, a Hong Kong-based company he co-founded over 20 years ago with his father, Charles and Anatole Kaletsky. GavCal has grown to become one of the world's leading independent research providers to institutional investors around the globe. Louis has written seven books. His latest, Avoiding the Punch, published in 2001, deals with the challenges of building resilient portfolios in inflationary times. And I can say, as a young analyst in Thailand, occasionally these Gav Cow reports would come across my desk, <laughs> and they were always interesting and fascinating. So, Louis, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me. Look, I think if I'm going to be perfectly honest, Gav Cow sort of got lucky. We were in the right place at the right time. You know, we were sitting in Hong Kong in the early 2000s, and it was pretty obvious when you were sitting there that China was going to be a huge factor for the global economy, and that there was a huge gap in understanding between China's role in the world and basically people's understanding of it. And we thought, hey, maybe we can try to monetize that gap. So we started an independent research firm. It was a macro research firm, but with a strong China angle. And we really tried to build up our expertise on, on China over the years. And like I said, we got sort of lucky because you know, China has been indeed one of the important factors in the global economy for 20 years. And we've gone in a position where people often turn to us to find out what's happening there. So we, we've, you know, we've had a good, a good wave to surf. And I think that's been, that's been the bulk of our value added. And what, what is the angle for China for yourself and your company? Like, where's your angle? Like I think about Andy Rothman at, uh, CLSA doing all of his surveys and stuff like that, yeah. which was, you know, fascinating and interesting. Obviously, you've already, you have some background with Chinese language and other things, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what was your your angle. Yeah, look, I think the real challenge for anybody in China and going into Andy's work, which is absolutely tremendous, mm -hmm. the real challenge in China is always getting a clear picture. And, you know, the main complaint of many foreign investors is, oh, I don't know if I can trust the data. I don't know if I can even trust corporate accounts. And so... You know, basically trying to give people a bit of a clearer picture. Now, the point I always make is that when you look at China, you're never going to get a photography. At best, you're going to get an impressionist painting. 
you know, you're going to say, oh, okay, there's a lake over here and a tree over there. You're going to sort of see what's happening. And so the, the important thing is putting things into context, how to relate the economic data to the policy pronouncements, to what you're hearing from corporates. And, you know, we, we try to do that all. We, we talk to the corporates, we talk to, uh, you know, try to talk to policymakers, although that's getting harder and harder. And, you know, listen to policy pronouncements and analyze the speeches. And and so, no, the, the, the main idea is, you know, tr try to put together a picture that is as close to the truth while acknowledging that in financial markets in general, you're never going to the truth. You're always, you can only, you know, try to approach the truth, which mm -hmm. incidentally is one of the reasons at GAFCAL, we are built around a culture of debate. We have very often debates internally. We publish these debates for clients. We have debates with clients that we also publish. And for the very reason that we acknowledge that, you know, there is no such thing as the truth in financial markets. So it's, it's an ever-evolving, ever-moving target. All you can do is approach it. And when you approach it, it runs away from you. <laughs> and so I think that is one of the reasons clients appreciate our research as well is we don't hide away from the fact that we will have very different interpretations of, of events as they unfold. And we're not, you know, we're not worried to, to present those differences of opinions to clients. Yeah, it would be great to talk a little bit about China. And one of the things that, you know, I left America in 1992. I lived in, oh, I grew up in uh, Hudson, Ohio, outside of Cleveland. In about 85 or something, I moved to California and found a whole new world, you know, and just like, and I would say that I was leaving Ohio when the jobs were leaving Ohio, really. <laughs> and then I slowly moved westward till I came to Asia in 1992. And, you know, here's where the jobs were happening. So I have a very different perspective on what's going on in America, you know, just because I, I never really lived there for a long time. And then I look at China and I never really was in China until about 2012 or something like that. And then I went and did my PhD at a campus there, which was just fantastic. And you know, when I look at China, I just feel like I don't see it the way that most Americans or maybe American politicians see it, that China is trying to take over the world. I can see some of the threats, but I don't get that feeling that China's objective is to knock out the U.S. In fact, when TPP came up, it was like a, it was a partnership, Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, excluding the one biggest partner of all. And I just felt like it seemed like America was just positioning all along to use China to get the benefits they could get out of it, see its development, hope that it went Americans way of being a democracy. But eventually when it became a problem, then the whole attitude changed. And all of a sudden what could have been America's number one ally in Asia has become now its number one adversary. But you know, what do I know? I would say what was almost America's number one ally. Because, look, I think the greatest coup of American diplomacy was Kissinger pulling China away, really, from, you know, the Soviet Union, from Russia, which fundamentally is China's natural economic ally. Because Russia produces absolutely everything China needs, right? China needs oil, Russia produces that, they produce iron ore, China needs that, etc. So, logically, you know, these two economies, Russia and China, should be married at the hip. But, you know, there's lots of historical wariness, etc. And Kissinger did a great job playing on that to pull China away and completely isolate Russia. 
And I think the the big mistake of U.S. diplomacy in the past five, six years is, you know, around 2016, the U.S. decided, you know what, China is actually a threat. It's no longer a friend. We need to isolate China. And, you know, okay, that was a decision taken at the very top. Basically, President Trump ran on that platform and was elected on that platform. So, okay, maybe that's how democracy works. You decide China is no longer a friend. It's now a foe. In so doing, the logical thing would have been to say, okay, if we want to isolate China, then now we have to get close to Russia. And instead, and I think this is where U.S. diplomacy is failing badly, is if you decide China is now your enemy and China is your, your big challenge for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you have to get Russia on side. But instead, what we've what the U.S. has done is basically ensure that China and Russia are now closer than ever. And I think that's a, a genuine failure of diplomacy because individually, they're actually decently weak. But together, they actually make a formidable block where because they're very complementary to each mm -hmm. other. China produces everything Russia needs. Russia produces everything China needs. So the U.S. really shouldn't try to pick a fight with both at the same time. If the U.S. wants to stay the dominant world power, it should. It's the old British rule of divide and conquer, or the, what the Romans did. What the U.S. is doing right now is really uniting everybody. It's not only uniting Russia and China together, which is a mistake, mm. but it's also you know sort of spat in the eye of Saudi Arabia, which now all of a sudden Saudi Arabia is a lot friendlier with Russia, which you know I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Obviously, still, you know, very angry with Iran. So it's it's a little bit, you know, how many fights do you want to pick at the same time? And I know the U.S. feels very strong, and it is strong. It's the, by far the strongest country in the world. But again, how many fights do you want to pick at the same time? I think more than one fight is too many. Another question I have is, you know, I always kind of looked up to, you know, senior people that were CEOs or executives or politicians or, you know, statesmen or bureaucrats and now I've just lost, I've just <laughs> lost all. I used to think that, you know, maybe they made some mistakes and stuff, but I'm starting to believe that they're either absolutely incompetent, that they haven't really read history and really, you know, studied hard, or they're purposely just kind of destroying things. And I just can't make it out. And I'm, I'm not in the US, so I can't really fully figure it out. But I'm just curious what your opinion is about what's happening. I mean, think about Kissinger and that you know really masterful move, but I don't see many masters these days, but what's your perception? So look, I, I, I can't disagree with you. So I grew up in France and I moved to the US in the early nineties to, to go to college. And, you know, if you go back to, to that period, the U.S. had just fought the first Gulf War and won an, an extremely convincing victory. Then, you know, you, you had the, the Mexican crisis and the Asian crisis. And I think the, the perception of, of everybody, and especially everybody outside of the U.S., was they looked to the U.S. and they thought, these are by far the smartest guys in the room. You know, there was a, a feeling of competence at the U.S. Treasury, at the Fed, that, you know, a feeling, it was the days of the Washington consensus. It was a feeling that, you know, these, again, the guys at the very top of the U.S., they definitely knew what they were doing. But, you know, fast forward to today, and I think if you look at the mortgage crisis, the absolute, or just more recently, just the absolute shambles of the COVID policies and the you know, I would say the precipitous rollouts of 
the vaccines, which have, you know, rubbed a lot of people the the wrong way, and the and how we've basically run roughshod over years of, you know, practice, medical practice, etc., to to push something against a disease that really wasn't even that deadly. Then, you know, you look more recently. I think that you know the biggest policy mistake we've made recently is confiscating all of the assets of the Russian oligarchs. Like, you know, Russia invading Ukraine is obviously a horrible thing. And perhaps confiscating the the Russian central bank assets, you know, could be argued made sense. But confiscating the assets of Russian oligarchs within a weekend, without court orders, without debate in parliaments, we just decide you're Russian, we take your stuff. It undermines the very greatest comparative advantage of the Western world. You know, if you think of what's the great comparative advantage of the Western world, I would say it's the rule of law. It's the fact that, you know, you can be brown, black, white, Christian, Jewish, Muslim. You go in front of a court in Paris, London, New York, et cetera, you've got the same fair shake as the next guy. And now we've added a little asterisk to this. And the little asterisk is, except if you're Russian. If you're Russian, we can just take all your stuff, no questions asked. Talk about cutting your nose to spite your face. Now, you know, I I don't roll for the Russian oligarchs, but you know the old story. It's better that 10 guilty men go go free than one innocent man go to jail. By wanting to punish Russia, we end up punishing ourselves a whole lot more because mm-hmm. all of our countries, the US, France, the UK, we're running twin deficits of 10% of GDP. And to do that, it basically means that we have to sell assets to foreigners. And who are those foreigners buying the assets? It's the Russians, the Saudis, the Chinese. And why do they buy overvalued London or Miami real estate? Because, not because they think it's a good investment, but because it's safe, Mm. right? The reason all the Chinese buy in Vancouver is because if things go bad in China, then they have somewhere to go. And now they're told, well, because Putin is a bad guy, we're gonna take the Russians' assets. And if you're Chinese, you're probably thinking, what do you mean because Putin is a bad guy? Because Xi Jinping is a bad guy. So if you're a rich Chinese, you think, well, this this house in Vancouver isn't what I thought it was. Mm. So we've we've undermined the rule of law. We've undermined property rights, which again is the very foundation that I think allowed the Western world to outperform the way it did for so long. So to your point on the quality of our leaders, for for our leaders to do this over the course of a weekend and not even realize what they were doing really tells you about the quality of the people you're you're dealing with. And I think, you know, I've I've written a few papers on this, you know, how did we get there? And fundamentally, I know it's a bit of a cop out, but like I think social media has a lot to do with it. The big problem is we live in a cover your ass society. It's like CYA. And what politicians don't want is 50,000 people on Twitter screaming at them. And so I'm sorry, to, I'm on my soapbox now, but the the big challenge we live in is if you're a policymaker, you're basically, as we saw this during COVID, we saw this with the, the Russia thing, is you want to be seen to be doing something at all times. You don't take a, like, and it's got to be immediately. So you can't like take a breath and say, okay, let, let's study this calmly. And so you end up making big mistakes. It's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a great angle and I hadn't thought about it to that extent. One of the things you notice in Thailand after many years is that the law is kind of a tool for personal power. So for instance, a- That's always been the case in Thailand, right? Yeah. And I suspect (laughs) that, you know, it's maybe a lot of places where a police officer has the law behind him to pull you over and get money out of you. 
Yes. And a politician or a bureaucrat has the ability to overwhelm you with policies and violations that basically eventually get money out of you. And so people see complexity in law and the overwhelming of law as the ability to to have personal power over people. And I always felt like America was not, you know, was always a rule law type of place. And then now what you're saying is that, and I can see it, that when people look at it, it's it's a bit of a mess. And I want to go back in time to 2008, because after the 2008 financial crisis, and I, I think there's a great book written by a guy named Peter Williamson, I think, called Hidden in Plain Sight. And he was the only, I think, Republican or let's say conservative on the committee that was investigating, or as we know in America, when there's a committee, it's called covering up. But there was a committee to investigate the source. And he basically said, well, you know, politicians started forcing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to have to own all of these lower and lower and lower quality assets and mortgage loans with all these good intentions. But everybody knew that there's a cost to having more and more lower quality loans. First, you have default, but second, you're bringing millions of people into the into the mix. And now they're new buyers and they're pushing up prices and, and all that. And then you actually cause this thing that now you then blame on bankers and say, you know, bankers went out of control. Well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac don't issue any mortgages. They desperately needed the bankers to feed them the mortgages that they could then say to the politicians, we met our targets. And all of this done off budget kind of in a quasi-governmental enterprise. I'm just laying the framework there first. And the second thing is, as an American in Thailand in 2008 or so, what I saw was the Obama administration, I believe it was at that time, saw an opportunity to push FATCA and the ability, I think it was this, there was something that came out about Americans that had money in Switzerland and then Switzerland, there was a, a, a leak. I can't remember at that time, but all of a sudden, you saw this wave of American politicians and bureaucrats getting into the banking system all around the world. And as I say, I've said before, it's like if an Australian person goes to Hong Kong to set up a bank account, they have no connection to America. They're going to still have to submit an American document to prove that this person is not an American for tax purposes. So I saw the weaponization of the financial system. And I'm just curious, like, where you see the origins and where does that go in particular with the financial system in this future? Never miss an opportunity, right? It was actually, so if you remember, the world melted down and G20 big speech was how we needed it to end basically offshore centers. So we needed to go after Cayman and BVI and Hong Kong, which he targeted directly. And we needed to, so go after the offshore centers, and we needed to go after bank secrecy in Switzerland and all that, as if offshore banking center were responsible for the 2008 crisis, right? Like you said, it was you know banks leaning too far above their skis. It had nothing to do with Cayman. It had nothing to do with Hong Kong. But the end result was indeed the end of bank secrecy, just like probably in the next crisis, we'll get the end of cash. You know, the next big crisis will lead to the introduction of digital currencies. And with digital currencies, governments will be able to keep tabs on all your spending at all times. And do you think that's the end game? You know, that's where we're heading. Oh, it, of course, that's where we're heading. Yeah. Okay. And um, I mean, but the bottom line is if, if you give governments the ability to have more power, they're going to take it. And why is it that Americans don't see this? Or is it just that, you know, when you see an opportunity to grab power, you just people grab it? 
Because yeah. I mean, I put up a post on my LinkedIn and I asked people, how many years before the, the First Amendment, the freedom of speech will be modified in America? Never one year, five years, 10 years. You start to realize like it's potentially cracking. I'm just curious about that. Well, so one of my pet theories is that 20 years ago, we let in China in the WTO. And part of the idea was when they trade with us, they're going to become more like us because that's what happened with Taiwan and that's what happened with South Korea. And I think for 10 years, that's the way it was going yeah. by and large. You know, they were getting free and freer. And I think the emergence of big tech changed all that. As basically big tech and big data started, I think the Chinese Communist Party realized, hold on, we can have all this data in real time about everything that's going on and hereby control society better. We'd be fools not to use it and not to do it. And so at that point, China started to veer in a different direction. Now, the reality is, if you look at the past 20 years, it's not that China's become more like us, it's that we've become more Chinese. I would argue that today, the freedom of speech in the Western world is a lot less than it was 20 years ago. There's a lot of things you can't say without fear of being canceled. Look at the whole debate over COVID. Mm. You know, when it first came out, and if you said, look, this is just a bad flu, you were run out of town. You were deplatformed. If you said, hold on, the masks really do nothing, and especially the cloth masks actually serve zero purpose, you were again canceled. Like if you went on Twitter or YouTube and you said the cloth masks don't serve a purpose, you were canceled, so on and so forth. So, so when you look at free speech, we've gone in the same direction. When you look at you know policies, I mean, look at look at the U.S. Whoever you vote for, you end up with the same wars. Mm-hmm. You end up with the same, you know, budget yeah. deficits, yeah. the same growth in debt. It doesn't matter who you vote for. You end up in the same place. So, you know, they give you a little bit in the U.S., a little bit of culture wars. It's like, oh, if you vote for the Democrats, you get this side of the culture war. If you vote for the Republicans, you get that side of the culture war. But aside from that, like, what, what's the fundamental difference? And one of the things living abroad that you really realize from traveling all around and meeting so many different people is that. America really was the first place where there was absolute protection of freedom of speech. And yep. you realize that it could also be the last place when I think, it's gone. I, yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, there's a few, I mean, I would say Switzerland, you, you still have a lot of individual rights. You know, I, I used to think, and I wrote this to my great shame, I, used, I wrote this about sort of six, seven years ago before COVID, as all these trends were becoming clear and clear, I thought, you know, the countries with common law and sort of British parliamentarian systems will be the best at, at upholding individual rights, et cetera. And boy, was I proven wrong during COVID as, 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 as Canada, New Zealand, Australia went way down the rabbit hole more than almost anybody. So, yeah, no, you're, you're probably right on the US. And, you know, perhaps the reason on the US is you still have a fairly, you have 50 different states, right? Each with their own rights and prerogatives. And perhaps because power is more diffuse, that's the saving grace. So, you know, New York may go stupid, but maybe Texas and Florida don't and stuff like that. It's in fact, the the union of states is probably the thing that could save America. And it's interesting also for many people that don't truly understand the origins of the Electoral College as an example. What most people think when they think of, for instance, a presidential election, they think it's a popular, you know, we should have a popular vote. But the purpose of the the Electoral College is that it is a union of states. It is these states ultimately 
that make the determination of the president. It is not a union of people. And so that's interesting. I had a couple of other quick things I wanted just to get your picture on. One of them is I have my strategies that I do here for Thai clients. And basically we do global, very simple, global equities, global bonds, global commodities, and then gold. So stocks, bonds, commodities, and gold. And I know that you've thought a lot about China reopening. And I'm just curious, between the China reopening and your energy crisis, you know, thinking that you've done, how do you think, you know, how would you put those asset classes into a context, thinking of, let's say, from a 12 to 12 months of five-year perspective? So five years is a long time, so I'll just do 12 months. There you go. Um, look, I think China's reopening is is the single most important macro development of 2023. I think there's two very important developments that people are sort of brushing over. One is China reopening, and the other is most likely Japan getting rid of its yield curve controls. Those are like two huge events that might not, I think people know they're there, but they're not fully thinking through them. Now, mm-hmm. China's reopening is super important to me, of course, because you get the pickup in demand and you know China's going to be a big contributor to, to growth this year. So I think that part people know. By now they know, and that's why you have copper rebounding 30% and lumber up 40% year to date and iron ore and all these things. Okay, fine. I think the part people miss is that during the years of lockdown, if you were Chinese during the past three years, if you were Chinese, you basically went to work and then you went home and you, you know, you didn't go to the restaurant, you didn't go to Paris to buy LVMH handbags, you didn't do, you didn't go to Phuket to go on the beach, you didn't do anything. Now this matters. Obviously, for domestic consumption purposes, you know, today household deposits are at record highs. So you got all this domestic consumption. Everybody sees that. There's always what you see and what you don't see. What you don't see is that most Chinese entrepreneurs, the guys who, you know, make our tennis shoes, our tennis rackets, our golf clubs, probably the teddy bear that's above your left shoulder over there, you know, the guys who produce all this stuff. They typically run two sets of books. There's the money they bring home to pay the bills, and there's the money they keep offshore in the BVI, in Hong Kong, wherever else. The reason I highlight this is that during COVID, for all the talk of French shoring and onshoring, et cetera, Chinese exports to the US went from 30 billion to 50 billion a month. You know, fastest acceleration. It's you look at Chinese exports, they went through the roof. And the US current account deficit, as a consequence, went from 100 billion a quarter to 275 billion a quarter. Now, for the past, as the US has exported 275 billion a quarter now for two and a half years running, we should live in a world of wash with dollars. There should be dollars all over the place. But these dollars have been stuck in bank accounts in Hong Kong or BVI, et cetera, because Usually these dollars get recycled pretty quickly, the offshore Chinese dollars, but they didn't for the past two and a half years. So now as they start to travel again, these dollars, look at it this way. For me, the Chinese COVID restrictions were like a dam on the US dollar liquidity river. The US was pushing all these dollars abroad, but they just stayed in commercial banks. And now the dam is breaking. So you're going to have all this flood of dollars that is going to come back in the system. Now, at the same time, the BOJ which has been a huge, basically, anchor on global yields. You know, by, by capping Japanese yields as they have, they've encouraged the Japanese savers to go look for yield anywhere else. Look for yield in the US, look for yield in, in Europe, in Australia, wherever. And now that dam is breaking too. 
I think. Well, we, it's not confirmed yet. We'll have to see what the new BOJ governor does. But there's a good chance to get rid of yield curve controls. So as Japanese yields come back up, obviously the yen will come back up. But I highlight this because you now have two massive trends, two huge shifts in trends that are going to be unfolding, both of which are fundamentally massively bearish the US dollar and bearish global government bonds. So I think this year we're going to see another basically big steepening of yield curves as the US dollar goes down. All of which should be, you know, a weaker US dollar, steeper yield curve that should be pretty bullish emerging markets. Can you go back to the China argument there? I I didn't fully catch what's happening now. The US has been importing Chinese goods, but then all of a yep. sudden there was this huge acceleration that those dollars went to these owners of the businesses, much of it, right. some of it offshore, but then they just didn't redeploy that into new expansion and all that. They just let it sit there and now it's getting redeployed or- That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Look, if you were historically, if you, I don't know, you own a shoe factory in China and you, you earn US dollars in Hong Kong, in the past, you would use that money to go buy Vancouver real estate, or to take your girlfriend to Paris and buy her 10 LVMH handbags, or to go to Macau, or whatever else. This was the Chinese money that you saw floating around the world. Mm. But again, for the past three years, you haven't had the opportunities to do all these things. But now you do again, and you have three years of revenge buying to do. So I think it's going to be pretty epic. And so what is the knock-on effect? So let's say that these guys take their money out of accounts. They're reinvesting, number one, in their businesses as things start to recover. They're also feeling more comfortable to go and spend globally and, and all that. What is the knock-on effect then for dollar or for currencies or for economies and markets? But I think the first thing is that obviously the dollar gets sold for something else. It either gets sold for renminbi if it's brought back in or for euros if it's to buy LVMH handbags or for Singapore dollar if it's to buy Singapore or for Thai bots if it's to go to Phuket. So it gets sold for something else. So the, the immediate impact is is a weaker dollar. Yep. Now, as you get the weaker dollar, typically you get you get stronger commodities, especially if the money is brought back into China to reinvest locally, whether in real estate that has come back and is now more attractive, especially that mortgage rates have come down 150 basis points in China at the same time, or if it's you know to build a new factory. Or you know, it might be that they say, okay, I'm building a new factory, but I'm building it in Vietnam, given all the geopolitical tensions. Or I'm building it in Indonesia, but you know, wherever you build a factory, you still need the iron ore, you still need the cement bags, you still need the lumber. So no, I think this is all an environment of that where growth is going to be stronger than people expect, inflation is going to be stronger than people expect, yield curves are going to be steeper than people expect, and the U.S. dollar is going to be weaker than people expect. And so what that would imply, I think, from what you're saying is positive emerging markets, you mentioned, Very much so. positive commodities, weak dollars, strong commodities, strong gold. Exactly. Okay. And then if you could just give a little bit more detail on the, the Japanese story that you said about the ending of the yield control, how Japanese have been chasing yield abroad, but you know, all, all of a sudden, if the dollar is starting to fall or the cost of covering or hedging that position also has been a problem. What are the implications there, just so we understand it from, a, let's say, equities, commodities, gold, emerging markets, developed markets type of thing? Yeah. So look, Japan is obviously an aging society. And so it's an aging society with outstanding amounts of savings. I mean, just crazy amount of savings. And and so you have a, an overall population that is extremely yield hungry and, and institutions in Japan that are also yield hungry. 
And that's, you know, a remnant of the 25 years of deflation, et cetera. Now, the BOJ made it so that for 10 years or more than 10 years, you couldn't get yield in Japan, right? You just couldn't. So the Japanese institutions and the Japanese private savers had no choice but to look abroad for yield. And that might be in US treasuries and that might be in Aussie dollar or Brazilian bonds or Indonesian bonds, you, you name it. If all of a sudden you can now get yield in Japan, it's like it's almost like a currency peg breaking. You mm-hmm. enter it to a very different world. You know, in my career, obviously, you know, the, the Asian pegs broke in 97. That was for me a marking event in my career. And the China revaluation of the renminbi, you know, because it had been pegged at 828 for more than a decade. And then they, you know, unpegged it. That was another key event. But now where this, for me, this is like the sort of potentially the third very big sort of, you know, currency peg breaking almost. Mm. Is it the opposite of what happened? I think if we look back at Thailand as an example in 97, what we had was interest rates in Thailand were were high, interest rates abroad were low. The Bank of Thailand had given permission for BIBFs, Bangkok International Banking Facilities to lend. And all of a sudden, US dollar borrowing went from about 5% of total loans outstanding in Thailand to about 25%. That happened in a period from, let's say, 92 to 96 or 97. And then all of a sudden, you have this big differential. And now what I'm thinking about in, is, is that opposite in Japan where yields are rising and it's attractive and they're bringing that money back? Or Exactly. I- it's like a reverse Asian crisis. I think that's, that's, uh, that's not a bad way to put it. You've had, you've had pegs. You've had the central bank saying, okay, you know, we're, we're keeping this here, just like the Thai central bank was keeping the exchange rate. And when they got rid of the exchange rate, everybody who had a US dollar loan got hosed. And here... It's, I would say, everybody who's got a yen loan is going to get hosed mm. because when they get rid of, of the yield curve control, the yen's going to shoot up on all the capital repatriation. But if you're sitting in Japan and you have a US dollar loan, it's going to be amazing. So it's, it is like a reverse Asian crisis. Interesting. I remember when I first came to Asia back in 92 that, you know, Japan was just, it, it was impossible to go to Japan. It was just too expensive. It just was. to spend one night yeah. there would just take all the savings that I had. And then dinner, I went to dinner Japan, was like, you know, dinner was like a thousand dollars a like, person. Yeah. Yeah. No, dinner in Japan in Tokyo in the ninth, I mean, in the late 80s, early 90s, dinner was like a thousand bucks a person. Back when a thousand bucks like was a ton, a ton of money. You know, in your late 80s, early 90s. No, mm. like the prices in Japan got to be very stupid. And yes, to your point, you go to Tokyo now and it's very reasonably priced. And you go outside of Tokyo and things are very cheap. In fact, I would say Japan is a little like the UK now, mm. where, you know, you go to London, things are not stupidly expensive, but expensive enough. But you go outside of London and like things are dirt cheap. So one last question about this is what your thoughts are on oil price and what's going to happen with that. I know you've talked a lot about it. You've written about energy and all that, but maybe you could just give us a briefing. But before you do, hold on. I want to grab that that monkey on my back. <laughs> oh, that's the monkey on your back. Okay, I get it. Yeah, this monkey. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting about this monkey is Curious, Curious George. George. Yeah, yeah. And you were wrong. It's made in Thailand? Nope. It says, made in Vietnam. This toy was made in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, wow. This toy is 57 years old. Okay, so there you go. And my mother <laughs> kept it all my life after she oh. bought it when I was a baby. And so I had it when I was a baby. And when my father passed away, I went through all the stuff that we have 
at home. And I was like, oh my God, there's Curious George. So there you go. Well, you know, I'm, I have a lot of affinity for Curious George because my, uh, my second son is called George. And when he was little, I think we did three or four Halloweens where I was the man in the yellow hat and he was Curious George. I'll try to find you the pictures. Perfect. Yes, uh, we'll get that. The, All right. Uh, tell us about energy and your, your thoughts on oil price. And then we're going to move on to the most important question of the whole show. Yeah. So my starting point in my own process is that actually you know, energy, economic activity is energy transformed. So energy is essential. And you look through cycles, when you have a cheap cost of energy, you typically get strong productivity gains. When you have a high cost of energy, you get typically weak productivity gains through the economy. So energy is essential to basically our economic growth, our economic well-being. And the whole history of the past 200 years of really, you know, for, for 5,000 years, there was very little economic progress. And the past 200 years of economic progress is first and foremost, the story of energy. It's, we discover coal. And what we've done is we've gone, constantly gone for the past 200 years to more and more efficient sources of energy. So, you know, we start with coal, then actually with whale oil, but that's not ideal, but then coal, then oil, then natural gas, then nuclear. And, you know, the past 20 years have been an odd time in the energy space where we've actually said, hold on, let's go to a source of energy that is more expensive and less efficient. Because for 200 years, we were all about, let's find, you know, the, the most efficient at the cheapest cost mm. and the most reliable. But here in the past 20 years, we've said, let's spend six and a half trillion US dollars, because that's what we've spent on solar and wind, to go for a source of energy that is less reliable, more expensive, and less productive. And unsurprisingly, we're looking around and saying, well, how come our growth is so weak around the world? It's like, well, <laughs> duh, you know, you, you can't have it all. And this is, of course, a tragedy, because if we decided 20 years ago, let's do six and a half trillion in nuclear energy, by now, we'd all be, you know, enjoying more or less free electricity for all intents and purposes. And we wouldn't have to care about Russia and we wouldn't have to care about Saudi Arabia. It'd be a much, much better world. But having said all this, I think, unfortunately, this trend of walking away from efficient energy sources has gotten worse in the past 10 years. And our energy balances are actually incredibly tight around the world. Now, I, th I think that they were tied going into the COVID crisis. The COVID crisis was obviously a huge setback economically. And, you know, the world rebounded from the setback, but China never rebounded. China always sort of stayed off the grid. And China was basically consuming a million and a half barrels less than it otherwise would. So China is now reopening. It's back to consuming a million and a half barrels. And at the same time, we now have Russia weaponizing oil. I think we saw that last last week, when last Friday, when Russia announced they were cutting production by 500,000 barrels per day. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think you know Russia is is about to start its its big offensive against Ukraine, and they want to like twist the knife into the Europeans and the Americans to stop supporting the Ukrainians. So the bottom line is, I think the, the energy situation is extremely extremely precarious. And my big argument for the past few years, I keep telling clients, look, this economic cycle will not break because of higher interest rates because we are now in an inflationary environment. And the reality is real rates are still very low or even negative in most countries. So it's not interest rates that's going to break the back of this cycle. It's a spike in energy prices. So, you know, and that was the theme of my book, Avoiding the Punch. The conclusion of my book, which written two years ago, is look, you got to be long energy names instead of bonds. Like bonds don't do anything for you in your portfolio anymore. The new diversification for 
your portfolio is energy and you know you find which way you want to own it but you have to have energy because this cycle will break because of spiking energy prices and for now energy prices are you know they're fine you know mm. we can easily afford 80 bucks oil and obviously natural gas is very low so you know it's it's fine you still want to own energy though because if and when the cycle breaks it'll be because of energy so let me go through a couple of quick points on that. The first one, you talked about $6.5 trillion on solar and wind. Was that in the US or was that globally? No, globally. globally. Okay. So we're yeah. seeing governments are ultimately subsidizing and companies are spending. Yeah. And the combination yeah. of those two is $6.5 trillion over- Over 20 years, 22 years, 23 years. Yeah. And look, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Which is, I guess, is the point of your show about your worst investment. Maybe our worst investment is the six and a half trillion in solar and uh, and <laughs> and wind. And maybe that's the worst investment of all times. You know, give people the benefit. We didn't know that twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, we might have thought, oh, you know, this wouldn't it be great if this worked? Where I find it frustrating is we already had something that worked, and that was nuclear. But where I find also hopeful is that as we get close to this energy crisis, and as people realize, hold on, Russia is weaponizing energy and all these things, the discussion around nuclear is actually changing. It used to be a dirty word, and to me, it feels like it's less and less of a dirty word. And so, you know, that that does give me hope for the future, because for me, we do have a solution to decarbonization. It is nuclear, and as long as we embrace that, we can look forward to a day, you know, in five or ten years, where energy is, you know, the marginal cost of energy is almost free. The one thing, the one thing we could have predicted is any place that the U.S. government aims its gun of money and focus, they just destroy it. <laughs> Whether that's the student loan market and you know causing massive Mort demand. You mentioned mortgages. Mortgages, you know, solar and wind, you know, just. Forget about the free markets. The U.S. government can solve all of these problems. It's what Reagan said. Forget it's different this time. The most expensive words in, in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> that reminds me of uh, watching Milton Friedman talk. And um, someone was saying, you know, but, you know, capitalists are so selfish and, you know, they're going to ruin us. And he said, you know, you think government bureaucrats are not selfish? You think government yeah. politicians are not selfish? No, so no, interesting. One last Human, thing on the humans oil. are selfish. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and we have to be. I mean, that's the way we survive. As far yeah. as the oil price is concerned, why hasn't it moved? Why haven't people seen what you see? And what do you think is the catalyst to get us towards that? Yeah. So I've been uh I've been struggling. I've been, like I said, I've been an energy bull and obviously energy's gone the other way. So I've been scratching my head as to what am I what am I missing? Especially while at the same time copper is has ripped mm. and so I think there's different potential forces at work. I don't know if you saw, but the Saudi energy minister recently said, Europe has successfully done its energy transition back to coal. So I think what's happened, if you look at Europe, which is still a big energy consumer, but also China, but also India, the coal use has re-accelerated massively. You know, last year, 40% of German electricity was produced with coal. Now, coal happens to be by far, if you don't count the environmental costs, you leave those aside, it's by far the cheapest way to produce electricity. Like if coal wasn't so polluting, we'd do nothing but coal. Coal mm. is great. There's, We have it everywhere. It's easy to transport. It doesn't blow up on you. It's easy to build a, a coal power plants. It's easy to burn. So coal is super easy. So I think perhaps, you know, one of the weights on, on oil is, you know, China's back to reusing coal in a big way. India's back. Europe's back. Brazil's back. So a lot of marginal buyers 
so that's one thing. And then the second thing that you know I, I struggle with because it's obviously a new development is you have one of the world's largest producers of energy, Russia, and two of the biggest marginal consumers, China and India, that are now doing deals off market at 30% discount to prices and in their own currency. So can we still talk of an old market when you have like all these different people, like big major players doing deals off market? Maybe not, right? If if China can now buy most of its oil from Russia and Kazakhstan, you know, at a deep discount in renminbi rather than US dollars, what does the US dollar price tell us? Having said that, if the price of oil is X renminbi and the price of the price of oil in renminbi is let's say X and the price of oil in US dollars is X plus 30%, then it is that oil that's undervalued or is it the renminbi that's undervalued mm. you know is isn't over time because what really matters in our economy is your ability to transform energy so if china has, has an ability to buy energy at a 30% discount then maybe it's its currency that's 30% too cheap and over time the currency will come up to adjust to adjust for this new reality mm. it's interesting uh, you're talking about to summarize that you're talking about China, India, and Russia being kind of pushed to the fringes and having to do deals. And given the environment and everything, they're doing those deals at a discount. And actually, what you could argue is the petrodollar system's been in place for so long that maybe there's also a lot of inefficiencies in that, in all of that. And maybe part of this is, you know, going around corners. We see some of that, you know, happening. Also, I guess the stronger UN over time or renminbi would also support some uh, the Chinese equity market and maybe those fixed income stuff. That you oh, look, the, uh, I can't remember who said it, but you know, for your listeners, the I can't remember if it's like Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett or like one, one of these legendary guys who was asked, you know, how, how do you have a successful career in financial markets? And you said, uh, well, it's easy. You know, you you wake up early, you work hard, and you make sure your career coincides with a 30-year downtrend in interest rates. And yeah, and of the three things, the third one is by far the most important. Mm -hmm. Now, having a current strong currency, like if you look around the world today, like having a strong currency is, of course, the way you make sure you have a structural downtrend in your in your interest rates, because nobody wants to invest in a structurally weak currency. The other way to have a structural downtrend in interest rates is make sure you you start off with decently high real interest rates. So as you look around the world today, you know where do you find real interest rates? And high real interest rates and undervalued currency, and and the answer is nowhere in Latin America. You still have positive real rates in China, and you still have positive real rates in, in a number of countries in Asia, Indonesia, Vietnam, etc. So, I think that's you know if if you think okay, like jokes aside, mm -hmm. if you want to focus on you know having the the tailwind of strong currencies and lower real interest rates going forward, you're not going to find that in the developed world. You're going to find it in the emerging markets. Mm, excellent. You know, I had a funny story with some, my neighbors came over to see me. They asked to talk yesterday and they're young guys, maybe let's say 30 to 35. And they said, look, our family has this loan and we've been paying it back and we borrowed money to do some, you know, particular thing. But what we know now we're seeing that we can't, we can't hardly pay it. You know, the interest rate's gone from like 0.5 to 5. And we don't really know exactly what to do. And we think it could be unfair. It could be, you know, extreme. And I'm like, guys, you never lived through real interest rates. 
5% is just kind of, That's I right. mean, look, you go get a credit card and you're going to pay 15 to 20%, you know, look at the past and, you know, a 5% personal loan that's unsecured is incredible. It's just that you still a good deal. Time of zero. <laughs> it's still a good deal at 5%. Yeah. Uh, well, what an introduction. And I appreciate all of that. I know for the listeners, they get a lot of value from that. And I'll have links in the show notes to your website, as well as your book and other stuff. But now it's time. To share your worst investment ever, and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Well, look, the first thing I'd say is I've got a long list of bad investments. You know, obviously, a lot of options I've bought over the years that have gone to zero, too many to count, a lot of private equity and VC deals that have gone to zero. And you're also asking, you know, what's the professional rugby team? So that's, uh, you know, that's a money, an annual money bleed of consequence. So I could have easily gone into that. But, you know, the real, for me, my worst investment, the one, and it wasn't the worst in terms of losing money, but it was the worst in terms of making me physically sick. In terms of, you know, you turn on the Bloomberg and you just, you want to throw up and you're losing <laughs> sleep, etc. So it actually harps back to my days at Asia Equity, our, our former joint shop. Mm. And so I was a young analyst and, you know, my dad, it was actually, you know, I grew up in a, you know, very privileged. My dad had been a very successful money manager. He'd made a lot of money selling his firm to Alliance Capital in, in the mid nineties. And then, then he'd retired. And then, so I'm in Asia, the Asian crisis hits and, you know, everything pukes, et cetera. And in August, 98, he calls me up and he says, you know what, this thing has, I think this Asia thing, it's, it's gone long enough. I want to buy, I'm going to put a million dollars and I want to buy, which for me, you know, back then I was paying like $50,000 a year. So that was mm -hmm. a fortune. And I want to buy a million dollars and I want to, you, you like find 10 good companies that aren't going to go bust, you know, 10 good quality sort of blue chip Asian companies and we'll put 10% in each. So, you know, I do a little portfolio and we put the money in and between August and October, it fell by 60%. You know, like the, you know, that last puke, you may remember, like you had LTCM and you had Russia going bust, et cetera. That last puke at the end, you know, Asia had already gone down sort of yep. 50 or 60%, and then it went down another 50 or 60. And I was literally sick looking at, at these positions where on every individual position, I was losing more than my annual salary. And then it came back. You may remember you lived through the Asian crisis as well. October to December, it came back. And by March, we were actually making money. And I was very keen to take it all off. I was like, we got to take it. Like, phew, we're back to even take it off, take it off. And he was like, no, no, we're wrong. The problem was, so I was managing this for my dad, but this portfolio sizes were completely disproportionate to my earnings. The size was too big, in mm -hmm. essence. I'd never had position of this size before. And it was completely disproportionate to everything else that was going on in my life. And that's what was making me so sick about it. And so I did take away two things. The first thing I took away is I became a bit of a coward mm. following this. And that I now, if I start losing, I now put my things in two buckets where I'm like, okay, this I can lose 100% and I don't care. Or if it's big, if I lose more than 10%, I'm out because I, I just don't want to go through the, these things again. So, you know, like when I buy options or I, I do VC investments, et cetera, I'm like, if I lose 100%, I lose 100%. But so I've become very clear in my mind 
what my risk tolerance was on individual positions. And so I, for me, I really split them into these two categories, things I'm happy to lose. And obviously, then I keep it small or bigger things, and then I, I cut much, much faster. So that's the first thing. But the second thing I'd, I'd learned was the portfolio sizing matters tremendously. And you know these positions were just too large for who I was at the time. And that's what made me sick. And I decided at that time that I never want to go through something like that again. It was, I was literally not sleeping for days on end. And I thought I never want to go through that again, which I think is really the most important thing about investing is most people think you trade against the markets, but fundamentally you trade against yourself. <laughs> uh, I think you do trade, you trade against yourself. And so you have to put yourself, you have to a, know yourself and this, you can't really know until you get into these kinds of situations, but you have to know how you'd react and you have to make sure that you don't put yourself into situations where you're going to react badly. Because here in these positions, if my dad hadn't been behind me saying, no, we're keeping it, we're keeping mm -hmm. it, we're keeping it, I would have sold like many times. I would have taken the losses probably at the bottom. And then I would have also, when once it recovered 30%, I would have taken the loss there. And it, except it would have made all the wrong choices because I would have been driven by my emotions more than anything. And again, I, I'll say it again. I think the problem in markets is you don't trade against the market. You trade against yourself. Right. Maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away from it. The first thing is the idea of kind of the phase of your career. I think yes. about the 97 crisis. We had, I was an analyst. I was rising as a head of research and all that. And so I was just at the beginning of my career. I didn't really know much. I hadn't been through much. And then we set up our coffee business, Coffee Works, that time also. And we didn't know that there was an economic storm, a nightmare. The economy was going to collapse by 11% in 1998. And it would be three years before we even saw a reasonable recovery. And the stock market would fall by 95% in Thailand in US dollar terms. I had no idea any of that was coming. And I think that when we get into stuff at the beginning of our career, we just don't have perspective. And that brings me to kind of the next point. And that is that this is the reason why it's important to make sure that you're investing with people who have experience, not because experience makes them better or that they can outperform. It's not necessarily the case, but man, they've seen a lot and that makes a difference. And then the, the last part I would say, you know, there's another thing that was probably keeping you up at night and that is it's your family money. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, of course. That relationship with father and son. I've had other guests on the show that have also talked about, you know, borrowing money from their dad and then losing it. And then all of a sudden, you know, just feeling awful. So those are the things that I would take away. Anything you would add to that? No, no, I think that that's very true. And I have to say, through it all, my dad was very relaxed about it all, which, you know, I found out later because it was a small percentage of his wealth. I didn't realize how wealthy he was, to be honest, mm. at that time. So he was fairly relaxed about it because it wasn't life-changing either way for him. Well, and also he but was doing, it was doing what he said. I want to invest, you know, yes. now, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. he, he understood yeah. it probably pretty well. So well, he'd been, he, like you said, he'd been through a few cycles by that point. He was sleeping. Uh, he was, he was sleeping. I was the one losing all the sleep. So, so based on what you learned from this experience and what you've continued to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think the biggest thing is portfolio sizing. Make sure that, you know, my father was very relaxed with it because it was a small size of his net worth. And again, he was very comfortable with that. For me, it was many multiples of my net worth, mm. and which which gave me, you know, gave me uh, just the, the sleepless night. So I think the main thing is, you know, obviously investing is a marathon, not a sprint. 
And when you hear all these stories of poor people who blow themselves up, et cetera, it always comes down to portfolio sizing. It always comes down to, to being too greedy. It's like, oh, this is great. You know, I've done all the work. You know, I'm really confident about this. But the reality is, you know, as confident, you can have done all the work in the world and you might still turn out to be right in the end. You know, the, you know my, my father turned out to be right with, with this investment in the end and he made mm-hmm. money. But the big, you know, the biggest problem of it all is how do you manage through the emotions? And if it's if your position size is too big, you're more likely to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Because remember, like if you've done the right work and you own something and it's tanking, if you're right on it, the guy is selling at the bottom, it's because they're going through the same emotions you are. <laughs> and and you know, emotions in markets are contagious. Like, you know, like one guy panics forces you to panic. There's nothing more contagious than emotions in markets, even more contagious than COVID. A great discussion on Mr. Market there. So what's, <laughs> uh, what, what is a resource of your own or any other resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Oh, there's so many guys I'd love to read. I mean, obviously, so we actually publish a, a free newsletter through our private wealth business in the US, Evergreen Gafcal, which I highly, highly recommend. It's okay. written by the CIO there called David Hay. And, you know, they reproduce some of my stuff, et cetera. I highly recommend that. I think in terms of keeping my emotions in check, there's a guy I really like called Kevin Moore. He writes the Macro Tourist, and he's very good at sort of sensing market emotions, et cetera. So I definitely recommend him. Hmm. I mean, there's there's so many great those great, are great. Uh, great, great newsletters out there. But yeah. I would say, look, the most important thing, there's also tremendous, like so many different books, tremendous books out there. I would say the most important thing, though, if you're starting off, start off small, figure out where you're good, where you're bad. There's no magic formula. The most important thing is know your own weaknesses and don't put yourself in the situation that play to those weaknesses. Yep. We'll have links to all that in the show notes, and that way any of the listeners or viewers can come and check it out. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Survive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's my goal every year. No, the um, my goal for the next 12 months is, look, I think we're – I'm actually I'm, – I'm half joking when I say survive. I actually think it's going to be a, a pretty good environment for a lot of emerging markets, mm. and I'm trying to figure out the best way to play this. Well, you're perfectly positioned given your experience and your business there. So listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Louis, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, look, uh, thanks. Thanks a bunch for having me. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely be looking up forward to a beer when I'm in Bangkok. There you go. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.